Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Partly Political Broadcast, a podcast that takes a sideways look at the past week's politics before realising, ah wait, I've fallen over. This is episode 107, I'm Tin and Duyeb, and this week as US President and Tigger onesie filled with macaroni cheese, Donald Trump said pictures of crying children persuaded him to sign an order to stop kids being separated from their parents when crossing the border illegally, I'm wondering why that didn't have the same effect on him for gun laws. Yes, Trump did the kind presidential duty of making sure families detained at the US border can now stay together, something that only wasn't happening because of him in the first place. It's a bit like if he took a huge dump in your kitchen and then called you up the next day to warn you it was there and demanded you thank him for letting you know. Despite Trump saying that it was a Democrat policy under Obama that led to children being taken away from their parents, it's actually because of his Attorney General and the baby from The Incredibles, but when he's well old, Jeff Sessions, and his zero-tolerance border policy. So, saying it's due with the Democrats is a bit like when Fargo says it's based on a true story, but actually the Cohen brothers just made it up. The only difference is, of course, Fargo is still far more believable than Trump having any conviction at all, and everyone actually wanted a second season of it. Since Trump's changed a globally unpopular policy, my Migrant children are, of course, still going to be locked up in cages by Homeland Security, only now they'll be with their families, something that, as a new parent, I feel is almost worse. Trump said he didn't like to see families separated, which is news to his rarely seen daughter Tiffany and his two ex-wives. All of this is terrifying, and if there hadn't been such pressure from many other countries, it's unlikely that Trump would have stopped letting children be put in cages. In fact, if anything, he probably would have made the centres some sort of screening zoo for Ron Moore. The fact is, the notion that those seeking asylum are automatically classed as criminal is a hugely scary state of affairs, and it does now kind of make the Statue of Liberty completely and utterly redundant. Then again, it wouldn't be the first time known misogynist Trump has demeaned a powerful woman. First hostage of the US, Melania, went to visit the border but was snapped wearing a jacket that said, I don't really care, do you? Many were certain this displayed her true feelings towards the separation crisis, but I reckon it was just her trying to prove, yet again, that she's definitely not her husband's day nurse. The US also announced last week that they are leaving the UN Human Rights Council, saying that it's not worthy of its name. Sure, okay, but then you should probably also scrap ICE, as they are, judging by the past month or so, severely unfucking cool. 
Back in the UK, Brexit is charging ahead like a dead hamster in an overall wheel after MPs voted again to not have a meaningful vote on the final deal, winning by 319 to 303 votes. I've never known so many people vote to not vote in my life. I'm betting they'd all love it when you unsubscribe from an email service and you get an email just to say you've unsubscribed. Dominic Grieve, you know, the one who's an extra from Rumpole of the Bailey, decided not to vote for the Second Amendment that he proposed, once again proving Tory rebel is as much of an oxymoron as affordable housing or compassionate conservatism. Grieve has been called the grand old Duke of politics for marching his men up the hill and back down again, but I'd say he's more of a Humpty Dumpty because he got knocked off his high perch very quickly, cracked under pressure, made an eggy mess and is now going to stink out Parliament for a very, very long time. 100,000 people marched through London on Saturday calling for a public say on the final outcome of the EU negotiations. And the thing is, though, we've trusted the public on quite a few things now and I'm really not sure that it's the wisest thing to do. I'm almost certain that we'd end up still leaving but with a very bad deal, but somehow it would just be called a Dealey McDeal face. Many of the marchers were asking, where's Jeremy Corbyn? But the Labour leader, a.k.a. Ernest Giveaway, was in Jordan visiting a refugee camp, which many said was convenient timing. Yeah, typical World Refugee Day and Syrian crisis, all ganging together to make sure Corbyn couldn't attend a march for something he's ambivalent about, and if he had attended, would probably just been booed at. Ugh, typical. I can't believe they'd have their homes bombed just to piss off some Brits. Gah, what are they like? Aeronautical manufacturers Airbus have announced thousands of jobs losses as it looks set to leave the UK because of Brexit. Yeah, good luck with flying out of here when we won't have sorted out the open skies policy by then, idiots. Health Secretary and sticky googly eyes on a mop, Jeremy Hunt, said that it's inappropriate for Airbus to make threats like that and that they should get behind the PM, a comment that only makes sense if he means that they can run her over as they prepare for takeoff. It's weird that the Conservatives now think businesses should answer to the state. I mean, next thing you know, they'll be trying to take the country back to the 70s. Bloody communists. Foreign Secretary and Vitamin Deficient Space Hopper Boris Johnson was overheard at a Foreign Office reception last week responding to a question about fears from business leaders such as Airbus, and he said, fuck business. Many of his colleagues have said that he didn't mean it seriously, but I differ. I don't think he meant it at all, and that fuck business is just his term for sex. Speaking of Boris, he was absolutely nowhere to be seen for the parliamentary vote on the expansion to Heathrow Airport. How ironic that despite his protest against a runway, that's exactly what he did. Turns out that he'd gone on a diplomatic visit to Afghanistan because that's somewhere the UK has fucked up so badly already, there's not much more he can do to ruin it. Meanwhile, Minister and Butlin's sad coat, Greg Hans quit as Minister for State of Trade and Investment so he could go against the whip and vote no to the Heathrow expansion. But Boris told the Evening Standard paper that his resignation would achieve nothing. And isn't that the perfect end to a career as a Foreign Secretary that has also achieved absolutely nothing? But just before voting on the Heathrow expansion, MPs voted to not back the Swansea Bay Tidal Lagoon project, yet further proof that they're afraid of stepping up to do stuff in case it makes waves. It would have been the world's first tidal power lagoon and an ambitious renewable green energy project, as well as a great investment for Wales, but it seems that the government far preferred drowning. Prime Minister and flexible fridge magnate Theresa May faces yet another party threat as Defence Secretary and what if a distant member of the royal family had never seen the sunlight, Gavin Williamson, has said that if he isn't given £20 billion towards the armed forces, he will topple her government. Something that is quite hard to do considering it seems they're already lying most of the time anyway. Military services have suffered harsh cuts over the past few years and Williamson says they need even a tenth of the money allocated to the NHS just to stand still. I mean, sure, standing still might work for the TA, but I reckon it would make 
for a mega shit navy and air force. This does almost feel like a weekly threat now, and I wonder if I should just get on board with it. Hey, mate, give me £20 billion towards snacks or I'll topple your government. Right, fingers crossed she listens in. And in Turkey, AK party leader and shaved upright seal Recep Erdogan has won Sunday's election with 53% of the vote, so he will continue being president for another five years, on top of the four that he's already served and the 11 he did as prime minister before that. And let's face it, he's unlikely to leave until he dies, is he? He's a total job's worth. While Erdogan is seen by many as dictator-like, with several human rights offences under his belt, a term that makes it really sound like his genitals are quite offensive, and now he's about to inflict his new greater powers as president that he won a referendum for last year, his main opponent, though, was Muharram Inche from the Republican People's Party, who is so hugely anti-refugee and would have seen all Syrian refugees in Turkey being forced to leave. So, Turkey had that really fun choice in their election of authoritarian power-hungry dictator or racist border-control mad bigot. Oh, aren't choices fun? So Syrian refugees in Turkey remain safe, while Turkish democracy doesn't. Still, you know what Erdogan and his government say, if you don't enjoy it, there's always prison for an indefinite period of time and a charge that probably doesn't exist. Lastly, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has given birth to a baby girl, which the New Zealand public are naming the Prime Miniature. That is genuinely made my week. It's proper great. Um, Ardern is the first world leader in nearly 30 years to have a baby while in office, which is odd because I thought she gave birth in a hospital. Arf. Greetings, Parpol Brods, and cheers to your ears for joining me once again for this week's show. Um, I'm not going to lie, today's podcast has been an effort in the making. It is day one of the heatwave, or as us Brits refer to it, the, oh God, it's too hot, how am I meant to do anything? Summer. Uh, you know, the one that we all enjoy and hate equally every single year. The news said it's 28 degrees in Edinburgh today, so I can only assume half the population there has completely melted. I mean, no one is used to this sort of rare occasion, what with it only happening annually. Anyway, uh, my headphones, I've realised, are essentially tiny argot ovens that keep the heat around my ears warm and uh, gradually just increase the temperature until my brain slightly boils and then they slide off in a wave of sweat. So I hope you enjoy that image because it's already happened five times during this record. Hooray! The um, second reason it's been difficult today is we suspect our daughter is teething because she is grumpy as hell and has been last couple of days and so I have to keep the headphones on so I don't hear her wailing. Uh, basically, today is either cooked ears or damaged ears through baby screams. Um, I'm tempted to just cover myself in egg boxes to create some sort of personalised soundproof room. Or I could cover our daughter in egg boxes. Um, The only problem with either of these things is that it's bin night and the recycling goes out, so that could mean one of us ends up in a skip. Still, I guess it's probably, probably worth the risk. Um, right, I've got to do some apologising uh, at the beginning of this week's show. I've got to do some apologising for uh, last week. Actually, a little bit apologising for this week. I'm recording this before the Heathrow vote goes ahead. I've no idea if it's gone through. I'm guessing it's probably gone through. Um, so that's why um, I was quite vague in the intro. Um, secondly, um, secondly about last week, or no, firstly about last week, but secondly about all things, um, you might have noticed on last week's episode, I have little to no clue about the footballs. Um, I thought I would do some work. World Cup-based gags on last week's show, and yet that gamble failed spectacularly, as I had said England had played Morocco, which they hadn't. They haven't done that. They haven't done that this year. I'm sure they've done it in their lives. Um, But this year, they played Tunisia. Uh, And the worst thing about that was I'd just seen the end of that match minutes before recording and still got it wrong because my brain couldn't give a shit. Um, This week, despite England winning 6-1 yesterday, I will not make any football-related jokes whatsoever, though I will say that with all Panama's financial services, I'd have thought they'd have been more interested in high-net gains. 
That is it. I won't do any more. I don't understand how it works. What is offside? No more football jokes. Um, the second thing, uh, second sort of apology type thing for last week is um, that a very nice person called Job emailed me asking why I have adverts for army recruitment on the podcast, uh, which shut me because I didn't know that I did. And I was temporarily worried that I'd woven in secret sort of MOD messages in amongst my gags. But no, um, it was one that was dynamically inserted by Acast, who hosts this show. Um, that's what they do. They dynamically insert adverts. So sometimes the advert you hear will be different if you listen to it in different weeks and things like that. That's all very fancy. Anyway, I've now asked them to block uh, that army one as it didn't seem appropriate with this podcast. Um, I can't have you using the global politics parts of this show to help you stage a war campaign somewhere. That doesn't work, does it? Um, anyway, Acast are very nice about it. And look, if that happens again and you hear an advert and think, hang on, that doesn't work with Parpol Bro at all, please just let me know. I mean, let's be fair, it's not as if I get anywhere near enough listeners to profit from them at the moment, so tough if the army think they're going to get some free promo from me. Let's just see Gavin Williamson try to come round and topple me. I am oddly sturdy. Um, loads and loads of thank yous this week. Um, huge thank you to Mark for donating to the Patreon, and thank you to Dan, Catherine, MC McCauley, Optional Armstrong, Nicola, Somebody and Somebody for the Kofi donations. Um, weirdly, with the Kofi donations, even if you put your name as anonymous, uh, th- those are the somebodies, I still get an email from PayPal saying who sent the donation, which is hugely um, ungood. Uh, that's the state of my sweaty-eared vocab today. It is ungood for the privacy. Um, so I know who you are, Somebody and Somebody, but I shall protect your identity um, because uh, that's what you wanted. Uh, you're not just anybody to me, anyway. <clears throat> um, I did a slightly needy tweet last week on the Twitters. Uh, I don't know where else you'd do a tweet, sort of in the park, maybe. But um, basically, long story short, uh, I'm having to go to court for two gig payments I'm owed at the moment, which I can't talk about because I might have to go to court. And while it's not huge dosh, it's just enough to derail life slightly. So anyway, I reached out for anyone who wanted to donate to the show to maybe do it this week, and several did, and it's hugely appreciated. Um, so if you want to help me tell Dodgy promoters to go fuck themselves because uh, I've got the Parpol Brods at my back uh, then please do donate at patreon.com forward slash Parpol Bro or Kofi ko-fi.com forward slash Parpol Bro for a one-off thingy this week would be more appreciated than most um, also a huge thank you this week to see there's loads of thank yous you lot are just so bloody giving um, a huge thank you this week to Daisy who got in touch asking if I still need people to transcribe past episodes of the show for the website I do um, not the whole episode though just the interview bits I've got the episodes I sort of type these out as a kind of script uh, often they've got loads of spelling mistakes in that I don't change them before I put them on the website but hey who cares yeah that's right grammar Nazis and there's already too many Nazis in the world so maybe I should fend those ones off as well anyway um, Daisy is very kindly going to do one or two of the interviews on past episodes and if any of you fancy picking one that maybe you haven't heard before or you particularly liked and you'd be up for popping the words into a doc so they can go on the ever growing resource that is partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk ever slowly growing resource um, then please do get in touch on the contact form on that website or on the Twitter at Bro, the Facebook Partly Political Broadcast group or partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. Oh, and the very last ask. Um, God, I'm needy this week, aren't I? I blame the heat. Uh, it's, it's the heat, in it? it? just makes you need stuff. Um, my last ask is that why don't you all just come around and spoon feed me because obviously I'm a man baby that can't do anything for myself. No, that, not, that's not it. Um, sorry, what I mean is, as you may have noticed, I changed the tagline for the podcast at the top of every show, every single podcast. Uh, this one was the one about sideways view of politics. This is exhausting and incredibly stupid of me, so I think I need a permanent one, don't I? I need one that you can always say about this podcast. It's like the tag that would go on a T-shirt if I ever made them. Um, do you have any you want to suggest? Is there a past tagline you particularly liked? Let me know. If I can find a way to do a poll or something, I will. But until then, send me words with choices conveyed throughout them. Thank you.
Oh, and um, last thank you that I forgot was that um, Gooses and Meese put a lovely review on the iTunes page. Thank you for that, Gooses and Meese. Um, and as part of the review, they mentioned that they listened with their dad. And that is amazing. More listening with relatives, friends, pets, or anyone else you think you might enjoy it. Um, it's not like it's a film. There's no sex scenes or abject violence that would cause sort of weird tension while viewing. Uh, no, it is all wholesome, family fun, isn't it? Um, with swearing in it. So um, if you want to review the show, please do that to any of your podcast hubs where you did till he grabbed noise from. And the last bit of admin, God, there's loads there, isn't it? It was boring. This is basically his own bloody podcast. I should do a separate weekly admin podcast, shouldn't I? But I bet no one would listen. It would ruin the point. Anyway, um, Tatton Spiller at Simple Politics, uh, my pal and uh, compadre in our current children's show that we're doing, um, he only let me know this weekend that he has a podcast called Aptly The Simple Politics Podcast, which he co-hosts with Hattie Schofield, who also works at Simple Politics. She's great. Um, and it's a lot of fun and it's hugely informative, all about the upcoming week in politics so it's like the, the opposite of this politics because uh, we sort of look a week back because I'm reactive not proactive story of my life um, so check that out ASAP do it hurry up well, haven't you done it yet yeesh get it simple politics podcast it's all very good right um, things I'm not mentioning this week uh, I don't know why I'm telling you that I'm not going to talk about legalisation of medical cannabis uh, and that's because if you go back to episode 70 where I interview Jason Reed from the Stop and Search podcast we discuss that there and also Jason's brilliant podcast covers it way better than I could do in a few minutes just listen to that all the time um, also Trump putting children in cages is really horrific and upsetting but uh, as is often the case with the US right now uh, we need a whole extra hour just to cover half of it and John Oliver's done it on his show this week so pff, I mean I'm up for doing a US update soon and if you'd like me to cover more Trump stuff let me know but look basically he locks up children no it wasn't Obama policy he did that all by himself he's an awful awful shithouse of a man so instead um, now that I've lowered your expectations of what you might not get on this show here is what you might get on this show or in fact are getting on this show. Um, I am interviewing Naomi Ridley, the CEO of Hastings Furniture Service, a small independent charity that provide affordable furniture to those in need in the Hastings area. Um, she is very good people, doing good work, and it's a lovely chat, uh, all in time for Small Charities Week, uh, which was last week, and therefore I'm totally not in time for it. Winning! Um, and apart from that, there is, of course, obviously, some Brexit things, because. Uh, but before all of that sort of stuff, here is this sort of stuff. Chris Grayling, you know, the Minister for Transport and what it would look like if you drew a stupid face on a morph suit. It seems everything Chris Grayling does is shit. I mean, just go back through his history in Parliament. He was Minister for Work and Pensions 2010 to 2012, and what happened? Tons of cuts to welfare budgets. Shit. Then Justice Secretary, the legal system went to shit, and now Transport Secretary and the railways have turned into awful postmodern stationary art pieces that never go anywhere. I mean, shit. Really? Chris Grayling? Hmm, Chris failing more like. But hey, let's go back a step, as it seems the work he did as Justice Secretary is still having to be fixed and costing millions to do so. Grayling privatised the prison probation service under a policy that he called Transforming Rehabilitation, something that sounds like a really edgy Michael Bay film. But it was actually a reform that replaced the 35 individual probation trusts with a single national probation service, responsible for managing high-risk offenders and then 21 community rehabilitation companies, or CRCs, or crocs as they turned out to be, that are responsible for low to medium risk offenders in 21 areas across England and Wales. These are all bid for and won by private companies, uh, including some very oddly named groups like Purple Futures, which doesn't sound good at all. The Futures Bruised, the Futures Purple, eh, that's not good. Sodexo Justice, C-Tech, and then the actually OK based on its name sounding, Reducing Reoffending Partnership. 
But it seems four years down the line, a Justice Committee report has found many of the CRCs, even from re-offending, reducing, whatever it was called, monitoring offenders only over the phone. Staff being so overstretched they handle up to 150 cases each, and convicts having to carry out pointless unpaid work like moving mud to different piles or turning up to job placements to find absolutely no one is there. Which, to be honest, I'd see as a sort of win, because then you wouldn't have to do anything. But who came up with those jobs? Sisyphus? Anyway, other reports include convicts carrying out high-risk crimes while under CRC supervision for low- and medium-risk ones, which is kind of the opposite of rehabilitation. If anything, it's making them harder criminals. God, thank God CRCs weren't in charge of the high-risk criminals to start with, or we'd probably now be under the wrath of supervillains. CRCs were also meant to secure accommodation and employment for prisoners once they left prison, but many weren't given either and then were left homeless and broke, meaning that they all committed crimes for survival or or got into alcohol and drugs abuse. The whole system was committed to before two pilot schemes were finished, which is the sort of confidence I haven't seen since 1990s Channel 4 programming. And it's already failed so many targets the government have had to give an extra £342 million to the project due to its losses, and yet no financial penalties have been given to them. However, the other side of the reform, the National Probation Service, which for high-risk prisoners is run by the state and seems to be working a lot better than the CRC contracts. And with the CRC contracts likely to cost millions more whether they're reformed or not, it's looking like the only option is for the government to nationalise it and take it all back in-house. I did feel like a party who said time and time again that we don't reward failure shouldn't still have Chris Grayling in a top position in a cabinet, let alone as an MP, let alone as a human being. But it now seems that along with the railways, Chris Grayling may well be the best option for renationalisation of public services in the UK. I mean, not that he wants to be, but that's just how shit he is. When you hear about charities, uh, it's often the big ones. You know, your Oxfams, your Amnesties, all the ones that you normally get chugged at in the street. But living in the giving undergrowth below those feet of these massive charity giants are millions of little small charities who all exist to aid local issues in tiny areas. Take, for example, Hastings. In that area, mostly known for a battle a while ago, they have been benefiting from the incredible Hastings Furniture Service, a small charity that's been running for 30 years, reusing and recycling tons of unwanted furniture and providing it to those who could otherwise not afford it. Furniture? Yes. Furniture is really important. I mean, for example, without it, I'd be sitting on the floor right now, unable to speak into this microphone because I'd be the wrong height. Oh, no, wait, I wouldn't have a table either, would I? So it'd probably be about the right height, only then I'd have bum cramp from sitting on the floor. And trust me, you would not want to hear that anguish in my voice. What I'm saying is furniture is something we take for granted quite a lot, but actually it's often stupidly expensive to kit out your home. And for people on low income, it can be extremely tough to make where you live, well, livable. I met Naomi, the CEO of the Hastings Furniture Service, through the comedian Mark Thomas a little while back. And just a few weeks ago, I hosted a show at the Delaware Pavilion with Mark and other comedians to raise money for the HFS. And I thought that what Naomi and her team do is so beneficial to the area and that she's such a fun person that it'd be really good to get her on the show to talk about it and talk about why small charities are so, so important. Uh, It was Small Charities Week last week, and so I feel hugely on topic talking about it a whole week later when none of the hashtags are relevant anymore. Oh, I'm such an idiot. But anyway, the HFS really are great and I hope that you find this chat inspires you to either donate to HFS or check out the small charities near you and help them in some way. Oh, and one thing I forgot to ask Naomi about entirely was the environmental benefit of reusing and recycling 300 tonnes of furniture every year, which they do, which you'll hear about. But needless to say, there are loads. I mean, there's plastic that doesn't get dumped in the sea and, you know, like there aren't any whales being killed by uh, old 
deck chairs. I don't really, I don't really know what they are. Let's just imagine some because definitely there are environmental benefits. Anyway, thanks. Um, I hope you enjoy this chat. Here's Naomi. So probably the best thing to start with uh, is just to ask you um, what the Hastings Furniture Service is and how it started. Uh, so HFS is a charity and a social enterprise. It was started in the 1980s um, to try and help people with low incomes to furnish their homes. And it started out with mostly volunteers um, from a, a really kind of derelict warehouse. And it's gradually grown. We've now got really big stores in Hastings and Bexhill that serve Hastings Borough and the district. Um, our van crews are on the road five days a week collecting and delivering furniture and electrical goods. We reuse about 300 tonnes of stuff a year and we save it from landfill and we run training courses and offer volunteering opportunities, supported volunteering for people who are out of work as well. So 300 tonnes of furniture, do you say? Yeah, yeah, That's a lot. A lot. Yeah, that really is a lot. And I mean, it's one of the things that I, I sort of found, or, or, you know, when I first heard about you that I found very interesting is, you know, why is it furniture? Because I, I suppose a lot of people sort of think of aid as being food banks. Um, you know, that's probably the immediate thing that we think of, that people people in need would feed, need food and stuff. We, furniture isn't necessarily a go-to, but it's how useful is affordable furniture to people in need? Well, brand new furniture and electrical goods are so expensive that most low-income households can't afford to buy new. And also when people are recovering from a crisis like a house fire or having to set up home after being homeless or being in a women's refuge, they often need to furnish a whole home quite quickly. Um, so affordable, good quality, reused furniture is really, really important for people. Um, obviously, food banks are important too. I wouldn't ever say that they're not. Um, but furniture is so expensive to buy that affordable furniture is really important for people on low income. Is there, I mean, sort of, is there a kind of uh, benefit to people having, you know, a furnished home as well? Because it's something... You know, it's something quite bleak about the idea of a very empty home, isn't there? And I suppose if you've got some sort of furnishings, it just makes somewhere seem more homely, more comfortable, and it's probably got, I'm guessing, mental health benefits as well. Yeah, definitely. There's there's all of those benefits. There's also benefits around um, encouraging people to sustain a ter- tenancy. So when they've come out of maybe an institution or from rough sleeping, um, and there's actually, you know, it's quite a big um, adaptation to make to having your flat and being able to make it your own and make it feel like a home is really important. Um, it's also part of resettlement, so for refugees, for women who've come out of refuge, who've been through domestic violence and they've maybe got kids with them the idea of having to put their kids down at night on cardboard instead of having a mattress is you know just another factor for them that deters them and from leaving an abusive partner sometimes so being able to provide that is is really vital sure i mean one of the things um when we did the fundraiser for you a few weeks back um you were selling packs of cleaning stuff as well was it it was cleaning and, and utensils and things was that right well we had them on display because what we do is provide starter packs of those items for people who've been homeless. So our fundraiser was to raise funds for more of those packs and we raised um, £4,000. And thanks to your brilliant comparing and all the other performers, really fantastic performance, which will fund around 60 packs for households who, again, they're starting again with nothing. So even things like a saucepan set, some, you know, cutlery, crockery, being able to cook and clean for yourself, um, towels so that you 
can actually wash and keep yourself clean, keep your kids clean, are really, really vital. Um, the whole pack costs about £60, which isn't all that much money, but it's more than a week's income if you're on benefits. So it's a really big help for people, again, in those situations where they're having to try and start a whole house going or whole household going with nothing but yeah that's that's what i mean is it's it's so important i don't think a lot of people realize just how necessary these things are and we kind of you know a lot of people just buy them willy-nilly and don't think about how needy they are or how expensive mm. they are um and things like starter packs and that must be so hugely useful to people um i wanted to ask mm. uh, why why is it set up in hastings i know you've got one in hastings one in bexhill is that a particular area that's in need sort of compared to other cities nearby such as brighton what you know what, what was the reason for setting it up there yeah i think it started in hastings hastings has always been a really deprived area i know people might think of it as a pretty seaside resort but we've got a lot of poverty re- related problems um and we've got much lower incomes for households even those that are in work compared to the rest of the southeast even the rest of the county um it's always been the case unfortunately um robert tressel wrote ragged trousered philanthropists here i can barely pronounce it but he did um and that was all about the the grinding nature of long-term poverty and low incomes and how difficult it was and he talks in that book about you know people having to approach charities for furniture um and i'm afraid it's it's still the case um so you know we are set up here there are projects in other areas and obviously there are issues in other areas but hastings is i think the 13th most deprived council area in the country we rate in the top 10 for things like uh, heroin deaths um you know really really poor issues um and there's a neighborhood just up the road from us in bexhill where two-thirds of the kids are growing up in poverty so it's not all beaches and piers and things. Um, it's, it is an area where there's a, a real need. Wow, I had absolutely no idea about that with Hastings at all. I think there were, there's a whole range of factors um, that are kind of, yeah, that, that work together here. There's, um, there's factors around geography, um, just being really quite cut off, it taking a long time to get to London, it takes a long time to get anywhere, whereas compared with Brighton, where there's a motorway and a fast train line, well when southern feel like it there's a fast train line to brighton um and you know so it's just a lot more accessible there are conference venues you know there's a lot more going on um so hastings is a lot more isolated and remote um that's coupled with then you know really compared to the rest of the southeast we've got quite cheap housing still we had particularly in the 80s and there were London boroughs that decanted people, um, encouraged people to move out. And so we've got, you know, a history of that. Um, and I think it's also the, the jobs that there are, a lot of them are seasonal and low paid. Uh, so there aren't a lot of really well paid opportunities for people who live here. Um, and there's also a history of our schools underperforming, so people don't achieve at school. So it's um, a combination of factors, I'd say. Yeah. And and what? How do you? How do you? How does the Hastings Furniture Service survive? Because I mean, is it entirely voluntarily run? And 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 you know, how do you self-sustain as a, as a as a charitable business? Well, we do involve volunteers. We couldn't provide the service we offer without our volunteers. Um, but we've also got a great, committed, hard-working staff team of fourteen. Um, we have about twenty volunteers as well, and our trustees are all volunteers too. Um, financially. 
it's it's mostly about selling stuff that we get donated. So our stores are open to everybody, but we give a discount and there's free delivery for a household if it's receiving a means-tested benefit, working tax credit. We uh, do discounts for pensioners and students as well. So people who pay full price are helping to subsidise the reduced prices for people who can't afford it, and that's how it works. Um, about half our income comes in through the stores from sales, um, about a quarter at the moment from uh, contract, but that's about to end. And the rest is from grants and fundraising events like the gig that you compared, um, and those help towards our training costs and the projects that we run in the community. So so you said some, some of it is uh, via contract and that's about to end, so why is that ending? So, um, yeah, the contract is to do with the Local Welfare Assistance Fund, um, and that was funding that the government allocated to local councils to replace community care grants um, so they could help households in crisis. So, again, it's about helping homeless people, women moving out of refuge and, and things like that. And it funded essential items like beds and cookers and fridges and food and travel. But unfortunately, the government only allocated extra money for a little while and didn't ring fence it or mandate councils to provide the service. So there's ongoing cuts to council funding that mean the schemes are under pressure all over the country. In our area, county council plans to stop the scheme this year. Um, and so the contract issue is that, that HFS and another local charity that we work really closely with called Furniture Now, um, we were contracted to buy in and deliver these essential items for people, the furniture and so on, and the funding included a bit of help with our core costs. So the cut to the service affects our clients who won't be able to get their bare essential items anymore to furnish their homes. And it affects our organisation because we're losing the income. And we know from the deliveries we've done over the last few years that without the scheme, there'd be mums and kids sleeping on cars on the floor um, and without a way to cook fresh meals and stuff like that. So it's heartbreaking to see the scheme end and there's nothing to replace it at the moment. So when... In 2013, the, there were grants and people were entitled to apply, and now it's up to the whim of the council whether there's a service at all. Um, and the only other financial support we get from our local authorities is actually just a, a reduction in our business rates. Um, and the government's running a consultation right now to review the tax arrangements for charities, so I'm worried we won't even get that soon. Oh my God! I mean, that's that's awful because what that doesn't take into account is obviously without you helping some of your clients, they're then going to need more assistance elsewhere. It's going to drain money from other resources anyway. You know, it's like all the the lack of money being mm. put in social care therefore has an effect on the NHS. And this seems like very narrow minded, uh, very narrow minded cuts, very short term thinking. You're right. Well, that's what's happening across the board is that funding is being taken away from preventative services and put into just crisis. And that, that all that the statutory sector can do is respond to absolute crisis now. Um, they are not going to be funding preventative services. And that's across the board, like you say, it's in social care and health as well. It's it's going to happen all over. And is that why, I mean, it, it was, uh, I realised that was slightly, slightly off timing with this podcast because it was Small Charities Week last week. Mm. Um, but, I mean, this is obviously affecting small charities all over all over the UK. And, and I mean, how... How reliant are people on small charities? How much of an effect is this going to have? Um, I think 
across the UK, you know, charities our kind of size have been finding it increasingly difficult. Um, so Small Charities Week, there were a bunch of reports came out about the impact of the, the way that funding is going for small charities. So, for example, now 84% of local government spending that goes out to charities goes to larger charities. Um, the commissioning that is being done is being done in big tranches, so you, you need to cover a huge geographical area or have a really big balance to be able to go for a contract. So that discriminates against small charities and stops us getting funding. But also the financial crisis meant that trusts and foundations that we used to be able to apply to for some of our work, they've got less money to give out. Um, and so it's harder to get funding from them. The grants are smaller. Um, and a lot of them are really short term. So you can get funding for six months for a project and then you've got to try and find something else, you know, to replace that. Um, and, yeah, the government has cut funding to local authorities over and over, so they in turn have been slashing the services that are provided by our sector where they used to contract out. Um, and, you know, we know that contracting on scale doesn't work. You know, we know that um, from Carillion to probation to Grenville, big contracting doesn't work for people. It doesn't work for communities, but it's not changing. It's the trend is for bigger and bigger contracts and for those to go to huge organisations. And the issue to me about that is that as a local charity, we've got a commitment to this local area. We want to provide the service that we have, regardless of the whims of government. We want to be independent. Um, and when we do get funding, we try and use it to invest in maintaining the service and maintaining our organisation so that we're here in future years for people to call on when they need us. Um, whereas if you give funding to a huge multinational organisation or national organisation, they will provide literally what it says in the contract, nothing more, nothing less. And when the contract ends, they'll pull out. There's nothing left in the local community. There's no benefit long term. And that's really, you know, the, the really, really negative part of this to me as a, as a strategy from the government. Since 2010, charities our sort of size have been finding it increasingly difficult. Um, in fact, there was a survey recently that said less than half of the charities that answered to this local giving survey were actually confident that their organisation would survive for the next five years because of austerity, because of funding cuts. Um, so it's really good to see a whole week of events sort of focusing on small charities because they, they are really important. Oh, I had a bit for Brexit fallout as well. Oh, did you? What was that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I looked up... EU grants to small charities, um, or actually to charities as a whole, they're currently worth £300 million a year and go to 3,000 different charities. So after 2020, there's no guarantee of that continuing because the government said there'd be a, a guaranteed continuation for a bit, didn't they? But things like the European Social Fund fund a lot of projects, particularly in deprived areas like Hastings. Um, ironically, because Hastings voted to leave... <laughs> Uh, it's ridiculous. But actually, if you map out where ESF money goes against where how the vote went, the ESF money is going all into the areas that voted to leave. It's really fascinating. It's really fascinating because they're deprived, and it's it's that um, unfortunately, you know, poor education being led by you know the red top tabloids to think things. Um, that aren't true and stuff that uh, that correlate, unfortunately. So yeah, so uh, so areas like Hastings will be the biggest losers from things like that from EU, EU ESF funds. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And we'll be back with Naomi in a minute, but first... Saturday marked two years since the Brexit vote and the government celebrated that occasion by bringing back some of our classic favourite adjectives without any substance. Oh, good. Like the good old days of Brexit, eh? Classic adjectives. What a nice trip down memory lane. Um, For example, Theresa May said we will definitely be having a smooth Brexit, which sounds a lot like it'll have a layer torn off and is prone to infection, or it'll be shaved down and include loads of cuts. Meanwhile, Boris said we'll be having a full English Brexit, which I take to mean that all options are fried. And if that's the case, we're there already. Happy crappy analogies for Brexit that don't really mean anything day, everyone. So, quick recap on last week's Brexit. After the Lords made an amendment on the EU withdrawal bill for MPs to have a meaningful vote on the final deal, the Commons voted to reject that amendment because the government made their own amendment, which they said would be good, but it wasn't good, which meant Dominic Grieve and other Tory rebels were appeased and then were absolutely appeased off, all within the space of a day or so. And then the Lords made another amendment, which they called Grieve 2, but they didn't give it any fun tagline like Grieve 2, to Grieve 2 Furious, or Grieve Strikes Back, or Judgment Day, or Look Who's Voting Now. This second amendment basically accepted what the government's amendment said and then said Parliament could make propositions to their final deal like, hey, there should be a people's vote on this or why don't you all go fuck yourselves or, you know, anything constructive along those lines. And this was a good amendment as it balanced both sides and allowed for some sort of meaningful input from a Parliament who's meant to be there to give meaningful input on behalf of their constituents. And then the vote happened and the government defeated the proposal by 319 votes to 303, a majority of 16. And that 16 included some Labour MPs such as Kate Huey, whose surname proves nominative determinism, and some Tory rebels, including... Dominic Grieve! Yeah, the person whose amendment it was totally bottled it and voted against it. Yeah, I bet he doesn't eat his own kicking either, and he probably won't turn up to his own funeral. Grieve said it's because he had obtained obvious acknowledgement of the sovereignty of Parliament from the government, which is great, because why not totally trust the very people who lied to you the week before? I'm starting to feel he might need an intervention. 
So, that's it. That's your update for the EU withdrawal bill. And um, what next? Well, the government still have to present the final deal to Parliament, and now it's up to Speaker Burkow to decide whether there will be a vote on it. And according to various reports, if anyone can bully people into doing something, it's him. <clears throat> so, there's still options for MPs to avoid a no-deal Brexit, even though it seems May is really intent on that happening, which I'm sure is because in a country with no food or medicine, no-one will notice her scurrying around at night eating the remains of the dead, and she can finally get away with it. International Trade Secretary, disgraced MP Lee and the disgraced Fox, told Sky News, we've got to be free in the negotiation to say if we don't get the deal we want, there won't be any agreement. Which, I mean, Liam, you are free to say that, but it'll just mean everyone in the UK will have a shit old time. Being free to say that doesn't mean you're then free, Liam, to hide somewhere secure when the post-Brexit purge happens and everyone wants to fox hunt because he'll be the first to go. If no deal is the only likely option, then rumours suggest there are at least 50 Conservative MPs who would employ a humble address. And I know a humble address sounds like it'd just be one, a home, a street, a place, uh, and that's it. But actually, it's where the House of Commons directly petitions the Queen to force the government to produce documents, or in this case, block a bill. Labour did it recently to get the government to release the papers on the impact of Brexit on the economy. And we can all see how well that went. So, hey, we should be fine. Oh, and time for the return of this jingle. Can you guess who this week is it that's leaving the UK because of Brexit? Because of Brexit. Yeah, it's Airbus and BMW because nothing shows the UK is going nowhere fast like all of our transport leaving without us. Airbus has plans that if there is a no-deal vote, they will fly the coop, which could lead to the loss of around 110,000 jobs. A jobs first Brexit, if you like, as Labour said they wanted, only I'm not sure they knew that would just mean that's what goes before anything else. Airbus say without knowing what deals the UK are making, it could hinder their UK operations. And BMW similarly have said that they'd have to close their plants in the UK, which would mean another 8,000 job losses too. But it's okay because they've aired these concerns, and to allay any fears and show big industries that they should stay in the UK, the government got Jeremy Hunt to say on the BBC that threats from businesses were completely inappropriate. Great! Wait, hang on, what? The Conservatives are no longer taking orders from business. Excuse me, what year is it? Who are those people? Where are the Tory party we all know and hate? Hunt warned against anything that had undermined the Prime Minister in Brussels, completely forgetting that means all of the Cabinet, including him, everything they've done in negotiations so far, and even just the weird grimacing face May does whenever she speaks. If you really don't want May to be undermined in Brussels, don't send her to Brussels. That's the only way to do it. Former chairman of the City of London Corporation has also said Brexit could cause the loss of 75,000 jobs in the city and over £10 billion a year in city-related tax revenue. But hey, that's all cool because the imaginary magic sparkly Brexit dividend should cover that, right, guys? Easily. Yeah, guys? 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 Lastly, it's been revealed by Home Secretary and stupid acorn Sajid Javid that EU citizens will have to answer three simple questions online to continue living in the UK. These questions are, one, do you promise not to send home reports telling everyone how shit the UK is now? Two, yeah, but do you really promise though, really? And three, please can you help? We have no idea what we're doing. Can you be a doctor and a fruit picker all at once, please? Okay, those aren't really it. The real ones are, they have to prove your ID... Prove that you live in the UK and say whether you have a criminal conviction or not. And then that will be checked against a government database and you'll get an answer very quickly, says Javid. And there would have to be a very good reason for you to get refused. Phew! So chances are only half of you will be arrested late at night in your homes, shoved into Yarl's Wood and deported within days. I really hope the other EU countries don't use these same questions for UK nationals living in their countries. Otherwise, I'm pretty sure most Brits in Spain will fail on the last one about criminal convictions and be sent back to Blighty in seconds. 
And now, back to Naomi. Yeah, I mean, you you must have such, uh, and the HFS over must have such a, a good local knowledge and an understanding of what people in that area will need and where, where people are coming to you from, from which refuges and from which, you know, that that's in, invaluable knowledge for, for a charity and it must be, you know, must enable you to do your work in a very um, caring and very uh, kind of efficient way as well. Yeah, yeah, and most of our staff have experienced the very issues that they're now dealing with as well. So most of our staff come to us through sort of volunteering and training programmes and, and have then found a job opportunity and at HFS and continue to work for us. So, you know, we've got a really, really brilliant team of staff who really understand our, our clients and our area. They live in the area. They're part of the community. Um, it's really, in, you know, it's it's hard to separate local charities from local communities they're part of that, that network sure and you just wouldn't get you wouldn't get that from a contractor it just doesn't work in the same way does it no no carillion doesn't really work the same way no <laughs> <laughs> not at all so what what is good about a small charity why are they necessary well i think the brilliant thing about small charities is that they tend to be really dedicated to the area and the specialist cause that they were set up to, to tackle so they don't tend to lose sight of that um and they will find a way to make a difference even if funds are cut or the situation changes or the government changes its mind about you know what's important and what way things should be tackled if you are small and independent you can work around that to some extent um and you have the freedom to act quickly and flexibly when there are opportunities for you or when there are problems with your community that you need to get involved and help out with. Um, so that independence is really, really important. Um, another great thing I would say is that they tend to employ more women in senior positions than any other sector. And so when I go to a meeting of local charity CEOs, I tend to be in a room with a lot of other really fantastic, inspirational women who want to collaborate and support each other. And you don't get that the Chamber of Commerce. Um, and it's really, really fun to work for a small charity, I would say. The people I work with are fantastic. There's a, just a wonderful team of people here who really muck in and work as a team. And I guess there's a lot of responsibility in the job, but there's also a lot of freedom and independence. That's really fascinating about the um, women CEOs. I didn't realise that. Oh, yeah. If you look it up, social enterprises and charities employ a lot more women as CEOs than any other sector. So you kind of, you can get better opportunities as a woman in this sector. It's not a key reason to, you know, I wasn't like that cold-hearted that I kind of looked at, <laughs> what's my statistical probability of becoming a CEO? But it's actually, it is something that's really, really noticeable when you start working, you know, I started working for a small local age concern and, and I, I really noticed that, oh, there are lots of women working at quite high levels or there's a woman in charge of this organization and that organization oh these are all really cool um so you know you do notice that obviously um I have to say that you notice that as charities get bigger, the men start to appear. But, you know, because obviously the pay packet's getting more enticing or something. But, um, yeah, at this level, quite often, you just have a meeting of charity CEOs and there might be just one bloke. So we get to be in the majority for once. It's brilliant. <laughs> I do like that. I may have secretly uncovered that actually you're just doing this all because you wanted to be a CEO. And <laughs> your yeah. secret plans. Yeah. Yeah. 
I wanted to be one of the lowest paid CEOs in the world. And I thought, how can I achieve this? You've got to have a <laughs> dream. You've got to have a dream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, are there any other? I, I, I know, if, uh, you know, I've, I've known of HFS for, for quite a while now. I, are there any other schemes like HFS in, in the country that you know of? Because it's not something I hadn't really heard of furniture mm. charities uh, like yours beforehand. Yeah, there are. There are hundreds of similar charities in the UK. Um, if you just do a Google search for your place name and furniture reuse or furniture collection, you're pretty sure to find an independent charity near you that does this. Um, they're quite often in warehouses hidden away a bit, so sometimes you have to hunt them out when you need them. Um, but there, there are. There are hundreds of organisations like us that were started at different times. And um, what is, I mean, I suppose the most important question I can ask you is what is the best way for people to support HFS or I suppose uh, if they're not in, uh, in fact, wherever they are in the country, they can come and support you. That's correct? Um, yeah, they can pop on our website, hfs.org.uk, um, and there's a page on there called Support Us. So you can see some ideas there. You can subscribe to our newsletter and stuff like that. Um, if you actually live in our area in Hastings and Rother, you can shop at HFS stores um, or donate furniture and appliances to us and think about getting involved with us as a volunteer and also in September we're doing an event called Thrift Fest where we're bringing together loads of small local charities that provide services for people on low incomes and opportunities like training, um, workshops healthy eating classes all kinds of stuff, all on one, under one roof um, at the Hastings Centre on the 22nd of September so that will be a really fantastic day to celebrate 30 years of HFS being established but also celebrate all the other work of all the other local organizations that we love and do you think I was, I just, you mentioned earlier obviously because we did that that fantastic gig for you that was a lot of fun um and you're doing thrift fest and you, you're really good at sort of finding creative and inventive ways to kind of get donations in is that something that charities are having to do and would you kind of recommend you know do, do you think that that's a particularly good way of getting people to kind of know about a charity and to take part and uh, get involved yeah, it really helps to raise awareness amongst people who aren't necessarily the core users of the service, but are, you know, our community activists. I mean, the commodity night particularly um, attracts a lot of people who are really supportive of the organisation, but maybe don't actually need to use it all the time. So um, they were coming along to that and buying our, our reuse manifesto poster and stuff like that. And it gives them a way to actually support us and show their support for us, um, as well as raising awareness of what it is that we do. Also, a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Um, mm. it's definitely a great way to well, yeah. Also, I get to see like my dream lineup of comedians, you know, just in my local. <laughs> <you know. laughs> yeah, excellent bonus. Um, and uh, and just the last thing I wanted to ask is, which, which you know, I ask all the interviews on this show is, um, apart from yourselves, uh, apart from HFS, are there any other small charities um, that you want to highlight that are currently doing really important work? Um, you know, a- anywhere in the country, really, that you think you know people need to know about. Okay, well, I'll keep it local. There's. Seaview in St Leonard's, which is a brilliant charity that helps vulnerable adults and homeless people. They run a centre where people can go for affordable lunches, activities, and they help people to get housing. So also there's um, Hastings Advice and Representation Centre, HARC, which helps people claim the benefits they're entitled to and also represents people when they have tribunals for ESA and DLA. And we all know what's been happening with the assessments for those um, totally unfair assessments that need challenging. So their advisors go along and challenge those um, at the tribunals, the the, uh, benefit tribunals, and I'm a trustee there as well. 
Thank you to Naomi for taking time for a chat. Hastings Furniture Service, as you heard, are a remarkable organisation. And if you live nearby the Hastings or the Bexhill Centres, you can volunteer with them or you can arrange for your furniture to be collected and donated. Um, and if you don't live nearby, you can donate to them via the website hfs.org.uk via the support HFS tab. Um, they're also on Twitter at HFS underscore says and on Facebook as well. And they've got an amazing manifesto poster which you can buy from the stores themselves, uh, which says, and I thought I'd read this out to you, um, we believe reuse and repair are revolutionary acts in a materialistic world. We all belong somewhere. Everyone deserves a comfy sofa. We're here to make a difference. Collective responsibility, volunteer, collaborate, connect. We can work together. We can be heroes every day. Oh, how ace is that? And those are a fiver in store. They look absolutely brilliant. I think you can get them on a postcard for a quid as well. I've got one proudly displayed in my flat. Um, oh, and the thrift vest that Naomi mentions is from the 22nd of September and all details of that are on the HFS website too. I would love to hear from other grassroots uh, campaigns and local campaigns and small charities uh, and small organisations. If you are part of one or you know of one near you, please, please, please drop me a line as it's hugely important to hear about local issues and the effects of national issues on local ones in amongst all the global ones. Um, all I've got coming up are global ones. Uh, next week is going to be Fred Carver from the UN on the cheery subject of Yemen. Uh, then after that, I've either got Justice Mexico now on the Mexican elections or Steve Sang on China. Uh, that's all in the next few weeks. Um, but after all those i'll still need more interviewees so what political subjects do you want to hear about who would you like me to chat to drop me a line at pop bro on twitter the partly political broadcast group on facebook the contact page at partly political broadcast.co.uk or partly political broadcast at gmail.com or you know you could pop your message in a pair of old trainers and sling them so they catch on a telephone wire above a street near me and then when they fall i'll eventually see it but chances are they'll take so long to come down i'll have moved out of the area by the time they do plus there aren't any telephone wires directly on my street and they're all around the corner where they're most sat on by crows who will likely eat your message and not give a fuck so as always it's just best to email isn't it and that's all for this week's partly political broadcast podcast thank you once again for choosing to receive this into your brain via your head caverns uh, don't forget to give this show a review on the podcast app of your choice whether that be stitcher podbean apple podcasts twitcher bodpeen or papple oddcasts or you know any others i've just made up if you can donate to the patreon or the Kofi accounts i will be your bestest friend forever although probably not irl as i've got shit to do capiche and uh, please do spread the word about this show to people you like or maybe even just listen with your favorite parent distant relative or least creepy acquaintance. Uh, big stars to Acast for nestling the show in its audio bosom and to my brother the Last Skeptic for all the beats and beeps and his new album Under the Patio is now out to buy and listen to um, without buying because the internet is mean to music people nowadays. You can do that on the Spotify's. Um, this will be back next week when I'll be asking if Boris Johnson can just keep disappearing until we all forget who he is. Bye! This week's show is brought to you by Dominic Greaves' Little Book of White Flags. Had an argument with a loved one? Have had to repatch things with an old friend? Have you upset a colleague at work? Well, give them a page from Dominic Greaves' Little Book of White Flags to say to them, Oh, fuck it, you win. I can't be asked." Dominic Greaves' Little Book of White Flags for when you realise it's far easier just to roll over and give up. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.